Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Politics remains a lively topic, and today we'll look at the lighter side of the subject. The liberal redneck sounds like an oxymoron, but Trey Crowder thinks that description suits him very well. He and two friends, Drew Morgan and Corey Forrester, make up the well-read comedy group. That's W-E-L-L-R-E-D. They're a trio of Southern comedians with liberal politics. We'll hear about their humor and proud Southern roots later this hour. First, a Georgia journalist takes on a local legend. Dwayne Allman, Chuck Lavelle, Frank Zappa, Billy Bob Thornton, Derek Trucks, and Susan Tedeschi are among the legendary musicians drawn to Colonel Bruce Hampton. An artist magnet is how Jerry Griller describes him in his new book, the Music and Mythocracy of Colonel Bruce Hampton. The author joins us now via Zoom. Jerry Grillo, welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. I'm so glad to be here. The book starts with the colonel's end. Bruce Hampton collapsed on stage at the Fox Theater during the last song of his 70th birthday celebration concert, and he died very soon after. How did this exit from life fit with his persona? That's a great question, Lois. I think it fit perfectly with his persona um, in one of those accidental ways. I, you know, I don't think Bruce ever would have planned for this to happen, but like so many performing artists, was known to claim, boy, when I when I go out, I'd like to do it doing what I love most, performing on stage. And, and that's exactly what he did. Um, it, was just, it was just too surreal uh, for words. And yet somehow I think we found a few words. <laughs> Indeed. How did you and Bruce Hampton become friends? It was another one of those happy accidents. Um, he was performing at a music festival near where I live in Sauti Nakuchi in uh, Northeast Georgia. We had a small music festival. Bruce performed a number of times 
And I got to know him that way, right in my backyard, essentially. And um, I had always heard of him and I'd been a journalist most of my life. And it was funny, I was looking for a project and um, we just happened to, to befriend each other. And after a couple of years, I got the nerve to ask him, um, has anybody done a biography about you? And would you mind if I give it a try? Um, but we just got to know each other through those performances and then uh, started having lunch. Um, and it just sort of grew from there. But I always admired the fact that Bruce, who never gave himself a lot of credit as a musician, could actually conjure some impressive sounds. Never had much control until I came to Arkansas. I never had much control until I got to Arkansas. He kind of gave, gave people, I think, license to dream in a sense and to take chances. And for me, he did that as for, since my work is mainly as a writer, I felt like I could take some chances. And certainly this biography was one of them because Bruce was not, uh, he was a moving target, if you will. He was not a guy that was easy to just pinpoint. So he made it a lot of fun. The esteemed musician Chuck Lavelle wrote a beautiful foreword to the book in which he describes Bruce Hampton as one of the most interesting and influential talents ever to emerge from the South. NPR referred to Bruce Hampton as the elder statesman of the jam band community. For those unfamiliar with Hampton, who was he? Well, Bruce was many things, but Bruce, Bruce was primarily a performing artist, and I think with a capital A for artist, he also... He was also a bit of a um, visual artist. He did some drawings and paintings. But Bruce was a, was a man who's from Atlanta. He's definitely of Atlanta, uh, spent most of his life here listening to and, and admiring the music of the South, particularly R&B music, the music of people like Otis Redding, um, and then a little bit more um, rock and roll kind of stuff. Uh, he, he really got into Little Richard. He thought Little Richard was the greatest rock and roll singer he'd ever heard. And that inspired him as a young man to do one of the only things he thought that he could do, and that was perform. And so he was a performing artist at heart who got into doing his, his first love of, of singing when he was about 18 in Atlanta and just sort of grew from there. He, his love of music grew as he attracted more musicians to him. He became sort of a, more of a band leader, if you will, starting bands and then breaking them up with, his, mm -hmm. with equal uh, frequency. But he would start these bands with some of the best musicians that people had not heard of. He would go to clubs, find people, meet people. He did a lot of networking. And then he would assemble these lineups and they would just um, blow the tops off of the, the places that they would play and eventually would develop this following. It's, it would start in Atlanta and then it would sort of bubble up from there. And it eventually became this jam band uh, scene where he started bands and, and they, they jammed, they would improvise. They were known for their great improvisation. And I think that had an effect on a lot of the other artists who watched him and his bands and thought, hey, we need to try to do that. And sometimes they could, most times they couldn't. You write about Bruce Hampton's 
uncanny ability to guess people's birthdays. What was that about? <laughs> he had this amazing gift. Um, and I think it was something that he either developed early on or perhaps he was born with it. But I think from the uh, moment that uh, the, the earliest moments I was able to, to discover from the time he was in his teens and through the rest of his life, he was able to guess birthdays. And Lois, I think he would narrow it down by looking at a person's face and then guessing their earth sign and from there breaking it down to their uh, zodiac sign and then from there breaking it down to what day of the month. And he did all this in a matter of seconds. Um, and he would surprise people uh, from all walks of life, waitresses, other musicians, fans, and it would be spontaneous. He might meet you uh, backstage and he might say, Lois, and name your birth sign and name your birthday. And then your jaw would drop and he, he, you would have made his night. <laughs> I mean, this is an incredible shtick. And we should add, when he came of age professionally in the 60s and 70s, it was common. People were very interested in astrology and what's your sign? It would be an opening line. But this was before asking people their signs. He just knew their birthdays. Bruce kind of defied a lot of trends. Um, it's funny. He, he sometimes defined them and sometimes defied them, if that makes any sense. And it didn't matter to him how, um, I think, how it was taken by people took him or they didn't. And he it was interesting to me that he he never tried to disguise that he would be as weird as as uh, as he wanted to be. Where a lot of people I think tried to uh, maybe they developed a persona that was quite the opposite, you know, to make friends and influence others. Bruce Bruce's persona was one that sometimes scared people because of some of the things we mentioned, guessing birthdays. Um, but occasionally, see people would be scared and run, uh, literally run. But uh, but most of the time, I think it. It really charmed people. It was a great icebreaker, um, and it made him a lot of friends. Why was he called the Colonel? The Colonel is a nickname that goes back in his family history. He was the uh, his grandfather was a colonel in the army. His uncle was a a major general, um, had made his way through the ranks. He had military uh, history throughout his, his family background. And so when he was little, it was his grandfather who nicknamed him the little colonel. And so they just kind of called him the colonel as a, as a child. And, that, and he sort of grew out of that and just became Bruce. And at some point in the 80s, I think it was the mid 80s, he decided to use that as his stage name. He brought it back. He was fond of using funny names, different names, such as Hampton B. Coles and a few other different uh, stage names. And at some point he decided to, to become Colonel Bruce Hampton. And I think he had used Colonel in other forms as well, but he decided to just become Colonel Bruce Hampton forevermore uh, at some point in the mid late eighties. And that became his persona. You mentioned his grandfather was a real military Colonel. What was his role at the University of Georgia? Bruce's grandfather, known as Coach Alex to the, uh, to the people in Athens back in 1910 to 1919, was the head football coach at the University of Georgia. Um, he was a very young, young coach, recruited there uh, from Gordon Military Academy and um, became a hit. 
he was quite a quite a success in Athens. He made the University of Georgia a winning football program. I think he was the first to really establish that. And during during the course of his nine or ten seasons in Athens, so we are talking a legend in his time. Jerry, you write about a woman named Liza May. What was her influence on Bruce? Liza May was Bruce's caregiver as an infant when he was adopted by his grandparents for a short time. Um, and Liza May was, had been born a slave in the South in the 1860s. Um, so during the Civil War, I believe, is when Liza May was actually born. And in her mid-80s, she was still a caregiver and she uh, influenced Bruce. She was probably Bruce's earliest mother figure. She instilled in Bruce a love of music that stayed with him forever. And even, even in his last days, he would conjure bits of song, um, folk songs and, um, and other melodies that Liza May would sing to him when he was a baby. And this, this just had a profound influence. I just always found that to be now, one of the more beautiful stories about Bruce. It was very sweet. I've seen a couple of pictures of Liza May holding baby Bruce, which are in a terrific documentary about Bruce called Basically Frightened that came out in 2012. About an hour and a half of a lot of fun, but there are a couple of photos of Liza May holding baby Bruce. And uh, yeah, she instilled in him a love of music that um, stayed with him forever. What did baseball mean to Bruce? <laughs> baseball was uh, was magic to Bruce. He, um, in fact, baseball was probably his second love after music. <laughs> he grew up in Atlanta listening to St. Louis Cardinals games that came to Atlanta via St. Louis's Superstation, 50,000 watt station. And he'd listen to those games at night, occasionally go see the Atlanta Crackers with family and just developed a real love and memory for the game. He could, he had a memory for statistics that probably matched his ability to guess birthdays. <laughs> Very quirky and, and all enduring. How did he end up in music? He ended up, uh, it's funny, Bruce had a saying he liked to use a lot. He said, uh, he doesn't plan everything, that everything just collapses into place. <laughs> and I think the same might be said of his musical career. He was a teenager, sort of drifting, not knowing what he would do. I think his grandfather wanted to send him to military school. He had, he had some trouble as a student and he was brilliant. He just didn't like going to class. So he didn't really know what he wanted to do. And he had some friends who played in a band called the Four of Nine. And that those are Roman numerals. So keep in mind, one, one V of one X. And they were known the, as the Four of Nine because they had a habit of showing up to gigs at four minutes to nine o'clock when they were supposed to play. And Bruce's friends were in this band and they um, knew that he was a little peculiar and he could do a, a professional wrestling shtick, if you will. He had a real sort of character about him even then. And so his friends invited him to come up on stage and perform, would you like to sing? And his attitude was singing. That sounds like operating on bulls in Bulgaria, what's singing? And so he decided to give it a try and he nailed it. He sang 
depending on which story he was telling, he sang either a James Brown song or a Otis Redding. And, but he, memory, I think, um, being what it is, it had happened many years earlier, but he remembered singing an R&B song and absolutely loving it and thinking in that moment, this is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I just can't be here for her to have her say to my face, Rondon. I sit and wait and wait But never wants to I get the chance It just sort it collapsed into place for him. He just kept with it. He kept showing up to gigs. The band kept letting him get on stage and he got better. He actually made an effort to study technique and become a better singer and he he looked at some of the people he considered the masters, you know, Otis Redding, Little Richard, the people who influenced him. And uh, that's how he did it. Journalist and author Jerry Grillo talking about his new book, The Music and Mythocracy of Colonel Bruce Hampton. We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with the journalist and author Jerry Grillo. We are talking about his new biography of the musician Colonel Bruce Hampton. In the late 60s, his group, the Hampton Grease Band, emerged in Atlanta and even toured with the Grateful Dead. I asked Jerry Grillo about the band's initial sound. The Hampton Grease Band, they were a completely original band, yes, who emerged in the late 60s in Atlanta. Their sound initially, they tried, they were really trying to sound like blues, like a blues band. They were a white blues band, if you will. And these were some of their heroes that they were trying to, to emulate. Uh, Otis Rush and some of these great singers that they had grown up listening to. And it was something that they could play. It was also something that was in their wheelhouse. And so that's how they started. And as they got better um, on their instruments, they wrote their own songs. And the songs that they wrote were not the blues standards that they sort of began playing. They were very um, complex, you know, almost fusion type of music, a bit of rock and roll, a bit of uh, probably pre-punk new wave, uh, some jazz, psychedelic music. It was an incredible combination. Um, Their music had 
it had a defined audience, I think, in its time. But the popularity, if that's the right word, has sort of grown over time. In the year of 010, Ray became crow. Factories manicured. They did one album, and the album was not very popular. It was a double album, which was rare for a, for, for a, a new band. And it didn't do very well. It sank like a rock. But it, it found an audience, and at this at this day, at this point in time, it's a collector's item. There are people who love the Hampton Grease Band's music, um, and so it's interesting how how things become collector's items. It, in the moment, it may not be such a great thing, but many years later, they're considered geniuses. How did they start a free music movement in the heart of Midtown, as you write? Yes, that was um, that was one of the, the great influences of the Grease Band was the free music movement at Piedmont Park. And that began when one of the founders of the band and one of the two great guitarists in the band, Glenn Phillips, longtime Atlanta musician, was a kid at the time and found an outlet in the uh, one of the gazebos at Piedmont Park and wondered if it was a live outlet. So he ran home, brought back a clock radio and plugged it in, saw that it worked and got an idea. The next weekend, the band brought all of its instruments, plugged in and they began a free music movement in Piedmont Park. It began as simply as that. I love the double meaning of outlet. He found an outlet. This was literally an outlet. <laughs> yes, because this was an outlet for a band that was known for being out there. And this was an outlet for their out music. I mean, it's everything about them was out. But you're right. <laughs> it, it truly was. And it, it's as fitting as, as can be. But but in doing so, they, they started a movement. Soon the Allman Brothers were joining them in Piedmont Park. Eventually the Grateful Dead joined them in Piedmont Park, many other bands as well. And it became a real scene in Atlanta as hippies would gather and others would just gather for free music. That was sort of how it all began. Well, continuing with the out route, <laughs> outlandish is one <laughs> word used to describe his stage presence. Yes. How, would, how would you describe Bruce Hampton's stage persona. <laughs> yeah, I think you, I think you kind of nailed it. Outrageous is perfect. He was outrageous, outlandish. He loved doing the opposite of what was expected. So if he was going to give you an introduction to his performance, he'd call it an outroduction. His stage persona, especially when he was younger, I think you might call you might call it Gonzo. Gonzo is a, is a pretty good way because he would he was willing to try almost anything. He was very physical, uh, so he might swing from the rafters if there were rafters to swing from. Um, he might throw things at the audience if he didn't want to hurt anybody, but he would fling things off the stage. He was doing some heavy metal stuff without um, the heavy metal growl. You know, um, he would do things. He would pantomime like he was smoking a cigarette. Um, and it would look like you could almost see the smoke. It was so, he'd do it so well, you could swear you saw the smoke coming out of his mouth and ears. He would play with the audience and sometimes push them, see how far he could, see what kind of reaction he could get. He, he always wanted to put spirit in the room and whether that was uncomfortable <laughs> or joyous, sometimes didn't matter, but um, that, was, that was his persona. He wanted to elicit reactions 
um, he wanted to make sure the audience was there and make sure that they made sure that they saw him. <laughs> what did Dwayne Allman and Chuck Lavelle do for the Hampton Grease Band? Dwayne Allman was particularly influential for the Grease Band. He was, um, of course, the the guiding light of the Allman brothers um, with Greg uh, in the late 60s. And as they got to know each other, the, the two bands, they befriended each other. They played some of the same stages. And Dwayne really liked the Grease Band, especially the work of Harold Kelling and Glenn Phillips, the two guitar players, because Dwayne loved guitar players, as, as Glenn Phillips has said. And he also loved Bruce. Bruce's personality, I think, was infectious. And so Dwayne did a solid for them by um, convincing Bill Graham, the legendary Bill Graham music promoter, to bring the Grease Band to the Fillmore East. Um, and he also, I think it was Dwayne who put in a good word for the Grease Band with Phil Walden and Columbia and the people who wound up making the Grease Band's only album. So Dwayne was kind of like a big brother. Bruce referred to him as sort of a big brother figure, um, even though he wasn't much older. I mean, they were all young, very young people at the time. But I think Dwayne, because of his experience and success in the music business, definitely was kind of a big brother figure for, for the uh, for the Grease Band. And Chuck Lavelle was kind of young at the time and much more, um, I would say, influenced by the Grease Band as opposed to being an influence for them in those years, but later on became quite a collaborator with Bruce. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of generosity on the part of these musicians toward Bruce. Yes, yes, there, there really was. There's a, there's a sense of generosity that came across that kind of melted my heart. I have to say, as I was working on the book, there were moments when I really got that, that feeling that you get, that flush feeling in your face that rushes up from the chill in your back. It was just kind of beautiful, but there was a real sense of friendship, camaraderie um, that was touching. And then I think Bruce tried to pay that forward in many ways as he became an elder statesman and really kind of came into his own as a, um, a father figure for many musicians. I think he tried to pay that forward. I think that had a real lesson for him, the, 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 the other people who were willing to go out of their way uh, for their fellow artists. I think that was something that really influenced and impressed Bruce. Wonderful quality. Hampton was sometimes called the Frank Zappa of the South. Will you talk about the unusual way Bruce Hampton met Frank Zappa? This blew me away. Yes, it's a great story in my mind, because there are several ways that this story has been told. Part of the fun was trying to get to the heart of how Bruce and his friends actually met Frank Zappa. But what happened was Bruce and a couple of his friends had traveled to New York um, in the 1966, I think it was. It might have been 67, actually. And they were walking down the, they just happened to be walking down the street near the Garrick Theater, where Frank Zappa's band had a residency. And it was a completely random meeting of the minds. Harold Kelling and Bruce Hampton run into Frank, and Harold supposedly goes up to Frank and says, Grease, just one word, Grease. And Frank really dug the weirdness of it. And they started talking, befriended each other. Before long, Frank had 
Bruce and Harold and their friends at, to the studio to be on one of his uh, early albums, Lumpy Gravy. So <laughs> this friendship that happened randomly on the street became a chance for Bruce and his friends to provide background vocals on one of Frank Zappa's classic albums. That's, that's the story that's commonly held uh, to be what happened because more people have told that story. The story that Bruce told, which was um, even more incredible as he's having lunch with his friend Harold Kelling in a diner um, and he's, they're talking about Penderecki Christoph Penderecki, a, a favorite composer of Bruce and Harold at the time. And Frank Zappa overhears this and he comes over and he says, did I hear you talking about Penderecki? He's one of my favorites. And they bonded over that. So they bonded over this incredibly, you, you know, bizarre sort of composer that would be suitable for these two artists. You know, you would imagine Frank Zappa and Bruce Hampton, if they were gonna bond over something, I could imagine it would be Penderecki. But however it happened, Bruce and Frank met very randomly. They stayed friends for the rest of uh, Frank's life. And from uh, Bruce used to say he would occasionally call Frank and ask questions. And Frank was very uh, gracious about sharing advice or in, and that kind of thing. Um, but uh, but that's, sort of how it, that's sort of how it started. And, and Bruce became known as sort of the Frank Zappa, the Southern Fried Zappa, because his bands often had a mothers of invention feel to them, that uh, comedy was sometimes just as important as musicianship. But the way he found, say, uh, Pendraki and some of his other more um, diverse sort of composers was because Bruce had this insatiable curiosity. And not being a, a musicologist, I might listen to Pendraki, you know and think this is kind of, you really have to pay attention. I don't know that this is, I'm not gonna be kicking my, my foot to this music. There's not a beat here. There's some, some stuff here that's happening that Bruce can tap into. Bruce's training, as you said, was self-taught and he would listen to what others said, what the experts said, and he would pick this up. And that was his training. You know, he'd pick it up on the streets as it were. He would listen to somebody on the radio and make mental note and then seek out the records and just really dig into it. And sometimes the more obtuse or the, the harder it was to access, sometimes the more he appreciated it, or at least the more he tried to appreciate it. He was also cynical. He would say things like, oh, the music of today is just horrid. Yeah, that disappointed me when I read that. I thought when you wrote about that, I thought, Oh, no. I, I think he was trying to be ironic. I don't know if it was, let's put it this way. I don't know if he was consciously being ironic or if he just was, because he would say that. And then a week or two later, he'd say, I need to turn you on to that. You need to hear this band, Lake Street Dive. They're amazing. The best singer I've ever heard. And this is when they were a fairly new band. And so he would do things like that. So I think he, sought, he, he actively sought out the different so if it was something that was a top 40 radio kind of thing, he automatically distrusted it. <laughs> it, it might, he may come to it later and he may enjoy it, but he automatically distrusted it. He just really had what, he had a sense of what he liked. He used to say, I've always wanted to be a black R&B singer and I failed miserably. He knew, <laughs> you know, he knew the irony of what he was saying. Here, here was this heavy set white guy from the South 
but he knew what he liked and he knew what he was striving for. <laughs> but he also had, a, I think, a really um, delicious sense of humor. So he would mock today's music, quote unquote, but he did that for many, many years. <laughs> okay, I feel better knowing that. It, it's, it, it's just, it, it seemed unlike him to be, to reach a stage where he became stodgy. I don't think he was ever stodgy. I, I think if it, when it came to music, he had, it's funny because even though he would call himself the world's worst guitar player, he had some high standards for what he wanted to listen to. And it, like many musicians that I've known, he wasn't one that often liked to listen to the radio when he was driving. He'd rather listen to a talk show or something, you know, maybe, and if he was listening to music, it would be maybe classical or or something uh, a little bit beyond the norm. You're listening to City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, if you've just tuned in. My guest is the journalist and author Jerry Grillo. We're talking about his new biography of the musician Colonel Bruce Hampton. It's called The Music and Mythocracy of Colonel Bruce Hampton. In 1996, you write, Colonel Bruce Hampton appeared in an Oscar-winning film playing a memorable character written specifically for him by a young, relatively unknown writer-actor-director named Billy Bob Thornton. How did that come about? Billy Bob was a young and struggling um, actor, director, when he fell under the, uh, the influence of Phil Walden, who, who became his artist representative. And this would have been probably five years before Sling Blade came out in the early 90s, maybe 1990. And Phil was working with a number of, he was reviving his own career at the time, uh, Phil Walden, and he was representing Widespread Panic, which was you know an up and coming band from Athens and reviving the Capricorn label. And so he tapped into his, his new friend, his charge, Billy Bob, to direct a documentary about widespread panic. They were going to perform live at the Georgia Theater in Athens. During that same uh, run of shows, Bruce's band, the Aquarium Rescue Unit, was also going to be playing. And uh, Phil was trying to get them as well onto his label. And so it just worked out that Billy Bob happened to be in the same room um, shooting this documentary about uh, widespread panic when he met Bruce and just really sort of fell in love, if you will. Bruce, when they first met, Bruce guessed Billy Bob's birthday, said something funny like, you're a Leo, why are you acting like an Aries? That kind <laughs> of thing. And so Billy Bob was smitten. You know, he became, this guy's cool. And they became friends and they stayed in touch. And that's sort of how the bond uh, started. So as Billy Bob went on in his career and he was a musician, he's an actual practicing musician. Um, he was, uh, he always stayed in touch with Bruce and felt influenced by this uh, strange man who had a lot of funny things to say. And, um, and his, his stage persona was like, unlike anybody else's, Bruce was wearing a Confederate officer's uniform during this particular performance. It was very weird. There's no political meaning behind that. It was Bruce being weird. And so he's wearing this uniform and, you know, Billy Bob just sort of always kept that in mind. And when he wrote the movie, 
he wrote that one part with Bruce in mind. He thought, I need to have a band leader in this scene and he needs to be kind of off the wall. And he thought, Bruce, that was it. He was just inspired by Bruce's character and he wrote a part for his friend and captured him perfectly. Mm. But I think if there were one thing we could redo, I wish the colonel wasn't wearing the Confederate uniform. I know, I know. I think it's one of those things that as we... As we move on in time, you know, people will look at that and they may get the wrong idea or maybe the right idea, you know, the right idea being probably not a good wardrobe choice. But in Bruce's case, the wrong idea, I think, would be it's reflecting some belief he has. Um, You know, that was the thing about one thing about Bruce in in the years I knew him. And granted, I, I only knew Bruce since 2007. But all that to say, I got to know the man pretty well and in people who knew him over time. This was a pretty open-minded person who who didn't see uh, color except when he was thinking of who he wanted to be as a musician. I mean, this was a guy who I think was really puzzled by racism, puzzled that it still that it was still a thing. You know, not puzzled by it with the, the troubling nature of it, puzzled by the fact that it was still something that. I guess you'd say was being practiced or it was still, it was still a thing. He didn't understand it. I think it was, so I remember having this conversation, not in any deep way, but I just don't get it. People are crazy. Why are we still talking about this? I think he understood the conversation. I didn't think he understood why um, we still had to keep having it. He felt like he had moved past it, I think. There's a story I heard, Lois, I'll share. And I, this may be very, anecdotal. I didn't hear this from Bruce. I heard this from a friend of Bruce's who said that when Bruce was young, he would look at the uh, window, a store window in Atlanta where he could see his reflection. And he would say the N-word in an ugly tone to see what it felt like to have that word spoken at him, um, to have that word like yelled at him by an ugly face, that kind of thing. He want, the, the story I heard was he wanted to understand, even though you can't, you know, you don't really reach that understanding because he's eliciting the sound. Um, I think he was trying to wrap his young head around that. Um, and so I think this was something that was, I, I don't think he gave a lot of thought to, serious thought about how we were going to change things. I think it depressed him that it was still a thing. And so he would do things like wear, you know, a Confederate uniform in his, you know, 1991 performance as the Colonel, you know, not even thinking of how, you know, offensive it might even be. And at the time, of course, he had two African-American musicians in his band, right? Two men who were very, very men of their time, very much men of their time. And it was just Bruce being Bruce. So this, it's hard to, it's hard to really understand and hard to, to wrap one's head around, I guess. Jerry, in the early 90s, Hampton led the Aquarium Rescue Unit, you mentioned, and you mentioned widespread panic. What other bands, musicians, did the Aquarium Rescue Unit help inspire and uh, essentially foster a new wave of improvisational jam band artists? Oh, great question. They were very influential and inspiring to bands, of course, like Widespread Panic, Fish, Blues Traveler, 
the Spin Doctors, Leftover Salmon, a lot of the bands who came along afterwards as well. And these were bands who, yeah, they sort of adopted that Grateful Dead uh, jam aesthetic where they would take a, a three or four minute song and maybe add five minutes of, or 10 minutes of, of different solos here and there to almost copying a sort of jazz approach to the way they played this live uh, rock music. But anyway, those are some of the bands that were inspired. Um, and that's, that's just a few. The, um, the uh, Dave Matthews is another one. Of course, even some of the uh, bands that have come since then who still look up to the ARU, they'll go back to YouTube and they'll look at videos of the Aquarium Rescue Unit and be inspired. In Basically Frightened, the musical madness of Colonel Bruce Hampton, that 2012 documentary you mentioned, actor Billy Bob Thornton referred to Bruce as the eighth wonder of the world. Why did Hampton evoke such wonder? I think there's a number of things. I, part of it is Part of it is those gifts that we discussed, guessing people's birthday, not being afraid to put himself out there and take chances on stage, you know, either, you know, sometimes making crazy sounds while this amazing music was happening around him. I think the, the fact that he would surround himself with these musicians' musicians would inspire other artists to, to question, how did he do that? How did he get Jimmy Herring and, and O'Teal Burbridge and Matt Mundy to, to play on the same stage with him? Sometimes it was just that, wondering how did this comedian, you know, this almost Andy Kaufman-esque type character surround himself with such great artists? There was that sense of mystery. And the other tricks that he had, things like uh, he would do things like ask you questions about a key in the woods, and then he'd guess what kind of key it was and what number you were thinking. He was a master of parlor tricks that would play really well in green rooms all across the country. So if you can imagine hanging backstage before your band is about to go on or after your band has been on and just sitting there and eating your lunch or whatever, listening to this man tell stories about, about his many years in the business. And that was another part of it. I think his longevity was impressive as well. You know, Bruce was, by the time those early 90s gigs came along, he was getting into his uh, 40s, you know, and he was older than a lot of these guys. So there was a sense of longevity as well, that he had been there and done that with some great musicians he had played with. And so all of that, all of that, I think, fed into, and Bruce was conscious of that as well, I think. I, I don't, believe for a minute that he spent a lot of time charting, you know, his popularity in this way, but he was conscious of, of who he was. He was conscious of the fact that a lot of these younger artists uh, thought highly of him. And so he knew how to play to that. I think he knew how he totally knew how to give his audience what they wanted, um, but also give them what he wanted. He found that he found that happy place. Jerry Gurler, your love for your subject comes through resoundingly. Thank you very much for talking with me. Thank you so much, Lois. I really appreciate it. You caught me a river and you caught me a sea. Journalist and author Jerry Grillo. His new book is The Music and Mythocracy of Colonel Bruce Hampton, a basically true biography. 
Jerry Criller will be in a virtual conversation with comedian Doug Monroe and AJC reporter Bo Emerson on June 7th, an event with the Georgia Center for the Book. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The liberal redneck may sound like an oxymoron, but Trey Crowder thinks that description suits him very well. He and two friends, Drew Morgan and Kerry Forrester, make up the Well-Read Comedy Group. That's all one word, Well, capital R-E-D, a trio of Southern comedians with liberal politics. I spoke with the group last August when they were performing live stream stand-up shows. Here's Trey Crowder on what inspired him to get into comedy. Just growing up as the weirdo commie in a small town in Tennessee, basically, uh, just my life inspired it. <laughs> my life and general life experience. I, uh, I grew up in a town in Tennessee called Salina that's, again, very, very rural, very, like, you know, stereotypically redneck. But as long as I've had any kind of political opinions or leanings at all, it's been very much on the left. And as you can imagine, that was a whole thing um, and has remained a whole thing. So it came from a very authentic place, you know, for me. Drew, I loved reading that being raised by a preacher and a librarian this explains your intellectualism and constant state of existential crisis. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I think that my curiosity and love of reading mixed with the constantly being surrounded by Bibles. And a lot of your listeners who are in the South will identify with this. A lot of people don't really read that book, but if you get into it, it's a little scary. And also so rich in metaphor for many, poetry, and yeah, that all plays into your intellectual perspective. Oh yeah, it's a hell of a book. <laughs> if you should excuse the expression. For some, the name liberal redneck sounds like an oxymoron, a contradiction of terms. Why does the stereotype of Southerners as bigoted or stupid persist. It's not as though racism is confined to this geographical region, tragically enough. Yeah, I don't know. A lot of people do think it's an oxymoron, but I mean, I think it's just, I mean, look, I, I think a huge part of it is every time you know, unless it's one of us getting a shot on a, on any kind of TV program anywhere. Otherwise, pretty much every single time you see somebody on your screen who sounds like me, who has this accent, it's the same kind of Bible thumping, mouth breathing troglodyte, you know, just not making us all look the best. And I know that there's all kinds of people who aren't like that, but the rest of the country, they kind of only see that one thing. And I think part of that is because whenever people show up to the South or look for a Southerner to talk to, they go either way to find the Bubba's of the world. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is like, not only, not only Hollywood, but just like media in general. And I don't want to, you know, do the thing that the right tends to do where it just blames every single one of our problems on the media. I won't do that. But I will say that to piggyback on what Trey said, not just in Hollywood, but like, you know, anytime there's any like a tornado (laughs) happening in the South or like some trailer park got ravaged, the, the news, the news reporters and stuff, they're not down there like, hoping to God that they find the next Mark Twain to interview. (laughs) They're not like at all. Like they can't wait to have some dude standing out there without his shirt on holding three dogs, like, because that's going to sell. Like, and I'm, I'm like, it's, it's a personal attack on me, but I still find it funny. So I get it. (laughs) Like I don't blame them sometimes, but like, that's just what it is. That's just what sells. Well, in your stand up routines, I saw that, you all have run into instances in which you were stereotyped as negatively stereotyped as Southerners. How does satire help address misconceptions about people? Well, I mean, I think it just, in our specific example, it, you know, catches people off guard a lot. I mean, if someone's like a f- active fan now and they know what we're about, then less so. But I think a part of why my videos went viral in the first place is because a whole lot of people were like, what, what is this? Uh, this? That is not what I expected. Or I had people literally tell me like, I didn't know that you were a thing in the universe, you know, or it's like, it's like seeing a unicorn and which I, again, I know is not true, but that's the perception that people have. And I think that that anytime you have your um, expectations just totally upended like that, it almost can't help but make you sort of reconsider your previous thought process about something. And you're doing it with humor, not with any sanctimony. Well, mm-hmm. I, yeah, sanctimony. Yeah, yeah. Especially I'm for a me. I could, son of a yeah. <laughs> yeah. We almost made it through without requiring any bleach. Tell me I ain't sanctimony, um, by God. Yeah, right. About everybody in here. Yeah, you get you would get run out of my hometown for proclaiming that I'm not sanctimonious for sure. But uh but I but yes, yeah, I mean you get run out for using you, the word sanctimonious first, but after that yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, I mean, but I think we all just feel like we all just like comedy and humor in the first place and are just fans of it, you know, separate of any kind of like concerted strategy to sort of break down stereotypes or anything like that. I mean, we're all for that too, but like being funny is for all three of us approaching something from an angle of trying to find what's funny about it is just something that we just do with everything it's like how we're wired you know let me piggyback off that and acknowledge we all just made a joke together about stereotypes and we didn't really subvert them much at that just now and we don't we're not constantly out here trying to do that we're comedians stereotypes uh should be poked fun at i think we live at a time where everyone's nervous about stereotypes and with good reason but kind of going back to your first question to me I, i think that we're going to be the last stereotype that it's not okay to pick at. And and I understand that. I understand why that is the reality. And so my sort of opinion on that as a comedian is, well, if they're going to be making fun of me and my people anyway, I'm getting in on this. I'm going to, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it my way. 
comedians Drew Morgan, Corey Forrester, and Trey Crowder, also known as the Liberal Redneck. You can hear the group's popular weekly, Well Read, that's W-E-L-L capital R-E-D, podcast episodes on Apple Podcast. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Monday at 11 a.m., our guests include the Atlanta-based visual artist Jiha Moon and Veronica Kasnick, director of the Atlantic Contemporary. We'll hear about the museum's virtual exhibition, Out Loud, curated by Jiha Moon to showcase art by Asian American women and dedicated to those who were killed in the Atlanta shootings at Asian-owned businesses in March. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. Have a safe and good weekend. Thank you for listening to WABE at Latter's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.